Amen. You may be seated this morning. Good, good singing today and praising the Lord and, and worshiping Him in this place. And uh, God, God has been good to us, been good to each and every person in this room. Uh, sometimes it becomes difficult to see just how blessed we are and how good God has been to us. And sometimes it helps us to look at other uh, believers that have gone through trials and temptations uh, to learn from them. In the last century, there was a guy named Alexander uh, Sholinson, Alexander Sholinson. And he was an author and a historian from Russia. And uh, Alexander uh, became famous at, at the end of the last century, the end of the last century, uh, for writing about the conditions in Russia and what the uh, communists had done. He, he was born at the time when the communist revolution uh, overtook Russia and the monarchy was overthrown. And he had spent his whole life uh, growing up within that environment. And uh, Alexander uh, got in trouble at the end of World War II. He'd actually been decorated twice fighting for the Russian army, the Red Army. Uh, but he got in trouble because at the end of the war, he dared to write some things suggesting that Stalin, uh, the leader of Russia, uh, had made some unwise decisions. And uh, word of this got out that he had written these things. Uh, we'd probably call them mild critique of the way Stalin had waged part of the war, and got out. And although he had been decorated twice uh, for bravery and for things he'd done for the army, he was taken a prisoner at the end of the war, and he was thrown into a prison camp. And for eight years, he was in what they called the gulags. And the gulags were a prison camp, and they had a particular goal. And the goal was to re-educate you. The communists had to re-educate you and how you thought and, and what you said and to teach you the, the, the right way. And so for eight years, he was in uh, this gulag. And it was pretty amazing. In that eight years, his parents died. Both of them passed away. Uh, his wife divorced him. Uh, it seemed like he may have been in favor of that, uh, but still that was very traumatic. His wife divorced him because the Russian leadership had made it impossible if your spouse was in a gulag, if they were in prison, the Russian government had made it impossible for you to get good jobs. And uh, he had a couple of kids already, and his wife was not able to find work, and so they divorced. And uh, it seemed like some of that may have been agreeable just to, to make it through the situation they were in. And, but you can imagine that. Your parents die, and then your wife uh, divorces you, and you're worried that she can't get uh, work to take care of your kids, and then lo and behold, while he was there, he got cancer. And as you can imagine, they weren't that concerned about treating a cancer patient in the gulag, and uh, got so aggressive and so bad that it grew, it was growing so rapidly that every 12 hours, every 12 hours, Alexander Shalinson could feel the cancer in his body expanding. That's how bad it was. In that moment of need, in that moment in the gulag, he remembered the faith that his parents had had. His mother and father had been Christians, and uh, in spite of what the communists demanded, they had secretly taught uh, Alexander the Christian faith. He hadn't thought about it a lot. I mean, it hadn't done him much good, didn't seem like. Uh, it hadn't helped out a whole lot, and he'd kind of put that on the the back burner, 
there in prison with his parents dead, his freedom taken, uh, cancer eating away at his body, his wife divorcing him, he prayed a, a prayer. And he wrote this prayer down, and it's an amazing prayer. And think about the state of this man when he wrote this prayer. Oh, God. He had a moment where he went from not believing to believing. And after he believed, he wrote this prayer to God about what belief had done. He said, oh, God, how easy is it for me to believe in you? You created a path for me through despair his wife has left him he's dying of cancer his parents are dead and he prayed a prayer and said God it is easy for me to believe in you because you have created a path for me through despair despair for him was not just some word on a page it signified all that he was going through and he said Lord you have provided a path through the despair oh God you have used me and where you cannot use me He was in prison. There was a lot he couldn't do. Where you cannot use me, you have appointed others. Thank you. Thank you, God. If God deserves our thanks today, say amen. Faith. Faith at a moment of profound loss. Loss of spouse, parents, freedom, impending loss of his life. And yet Alexander Solinson found faith to trust in God. And maybe today you are in the situation where you find it hard to exercise faith. You find it hard to continue upon the path that God has for you in the midst of your despair. And so it can be shocking. It can be shocking to read words like these from an individual who seems he has nothing left to live for, and yet he says to God, God, thank you for what you have done in my life. And God, what I've not been able to do Thank you for others who can do it. It is shocking to read this sort of God-word, God-given, God-focused faith. But perhaps it should not shock us so much. Because Jesus, Jesus has said that this level of faith is available not just to Alexander, but that level of faith and even a greater faith is available to all who follow Him. Oh, if you need faith in these days of trouble, say amen. You need faith. So turn to Matthew chapter 21. Go to Matthew chapter 21 this morning and let's look at Jesus' shocking statement of the degree or the type of faith that is available to his followers. And today, if you find yourself struggling with the path that you are on, listen to what Jesus has to say to you. Matthew chapter 21 And we'll start in verse 17. All right, Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. He's nearing the end of his ministry. And uh, he's entering into his last days. And he's he's entered into Jerusalem and he's had some confrontation. Some confrontation with the religious leaders. And now he is exiting. He He is leaving the city. All right, so we pick up with him going outside the city. Now he'll go back and there'll continue to be more confrontation uh, but he's entered in, he's done some things, and now he's exiting the city uh, to go and to, uh, to rest, to prepare him for what is to come. It says in Matthew 21, 17 that he left them. He left them and went out of the city unto Bethany, and he lodged there. And in the morning, as he returned to the city, he hungered. There became a 
hunger within him. And he saw a fig tree in the way. Uh, He's traveling down the road, down the path, and he sees a fig tree. And it says when he saw the fig tree that he came to it. And he had expectation. He had expectation that there were going to be figs upon the tree. And so it says he came to it, but he found nothing there. There was nothing there on it. But leaves only. And he said unto it, the Lord said, Let no fruit grow on you henceforward forever. He said, no fruit there? Bearing no fruit? He says, there'll never be fruit on you. And presently the fig tree, quickly, very quickly, the fig tree withered away. Withered away and died. When the disciples saw it, they marveled. And they said, how soon is the fig tree withered away? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, or truly I say to you, If you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also you shall say unto this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea, and it shall be done. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing You shall receive. You shall receive. Over and over again, Jesus and the religious leaders have had conflict throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Time and time again, they've squared off one against another. And over and over again, the religious leaders who represent uh, so much of what was going on and so much of the opposition to Jesus, over and over again, they say, no, we don't want to listen to what Jesus has to say. They would not allow themselves to be placed under the authority of Jesus and his teaching. So although Jesus had done many and great things, and he had spoken amazing words, in spite of all of this, the religious leaders refused to exercise faith. And here in this last week, this conclusion of his ministry that is coming, even then they refuse to embrace him and who he is. So upon entering the city, there will be a, a, a finalization to this showdown that has been going on. The people that should have led the way, those that should have embraced Jesus and his teaching, those that should have led the way for others, they will not listen. They have no faith. And so leaving the city, Jesus sees the fig tree. And under the Mosaic law, it was interesting, under the Mosaic law, if your fig tree was next to the roadway, if it was growing there on the roadway, uh, any traveler, Jew or, or, or foreigner or immigrant, any traveler had a right under the Mosaic law to reach up and eat from those figs. It's sort of a social welfare program that God had set up in his law. So anybody who came could travel through and could eat from those figs. Now God, you know, I, he didn't have to put that in his law. But if that is amazing that God cares for all of us wherever we're from, if that's a wonderful thing today, say amen. Wonderful thing. And so there, there Jesus is. And the Mosaic law has said these fig trees that are there, anybody can eat from them. And Jesus is hungry and Jesus walks up to the fig tree expecting to eat from it. But he gets there and there's nothing but leaves. There's nothing but leaves and, and he is disappointed and he is uh, sad and upset. Now, I, I'm going to, I'm gonna. well, I'm not really picking on a good friend of mine. I'm telling on myself. So, you know, one, one of the people that's been important in my life, my whole life, 
has been Miss Frida, Miss Frida Stout. She's been really, really important to me. And uh, just good, you know, good influence and, and all these things. And so when I first moved back, we like to joke around because when I first moved back to Cookville seven and a half years ago, Frida invited me over for dinner. And she invited Laura over for dinner. And I was pumped, going to get a free meal. I didn't get any better than that, right? And she invited me over to eat. And I know Frida's a good cook, and so I was really excited. And she said she's going to have chicken spaghetti, right? That's what it's called, chicken spaghetti. She said chicken spaghetti. So in my mind, not being a chef, I thought chicken spaghetti meant I was going to have spaghetti with chicken on top, right? Does that make sense to you? Chicken spaghetti. That's what I thought it was going to be. And so I was looking forward to this. And I was excited. And uh, I'm a baby. I'm a picky eater, okay? Really, really picky eater. And I was excited and looking forward to this. And so my wife, we get there ready to eat, and we're sitting down, and the food comes out. And I'm looking at this thing on my plate. And instead of chicken and spaghetti, there's all these disgusting vegetables on my plate. That, amen. And I'm looking at it. And I'm thinking to myself, and like anybody who's in certain positions, you know exactly where this is going. I'm sitting there looking at it thinking, I really want to toss this. But I got to eat this. Like I can't show up into her house. And not eat this food. I'm her guest. I've got to eat this. And so I did. I mean, man, I, I started biting in. And I felt like I was doing a good job. I felt like I had a smile on my face. And I felt like I was just eating away. And I, I was thinking to myself, she has no idea how much this is hurting me to eat this food. And I ate and I ate. And, man, I'm telling you, I ate and ate. Man, I ate so much, I probably had got about a fourth of it finished. I ate so much. And finally, Miss Frida looked at me and she goes, you don't like that, do you? Uh, I lied. You know, I lied. Uh, well, uh, it, it's okay. Just not, not, not exactly what I, th- I, th- I thought it was going to be. You don't like it, do you, Chuck? No, I don't. You know, no, Frida, I don't like it. I don't really like it. And I said, I thought I was getting chicken and spaghetti. And so she graciously didn't make me eat anymore. I thought I was going to get one thing when I went over there. And I got something else. Jesus walks to this fig tree, and he walks up to it, and he expects there to be figs there. And he expects that he's going to be able to eat and to nourish himself as he heads into Jerusalem. But when he gets there on that fig tree, there are no figs. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. And so Jesus takes this moment to teach his disciples what's been going on within Israel. Israel was created and made to praise God, and it had been an expectation of this Messiah that would come and would show them the fulfillment of the law and show them how to, how to perfectly exercise the love of God. And yet the religious leaders, not, not everybody, right? The, the people that are following Jesus are, are Jewish people, and there are others that have linked on. But the Jewish leadership, by and large, has said, no, we won't do that. And so those that had been set up under the old law of God, to prepare and to show the way and should have been ready for Jesus, they were not doing that. In fact, they were doing the opposite. They were opposing him. And so Jesus looks at the fig tree and he teaches them this lesson. He's trying to give them an object lesson so they can understand. And he curses it so it dies because it's not doing what it's supposed to do. In the same way, Israel was not exercising the faith that it was supposed to show. My friends, listen, we all know how bad it is right now. We know the natural disasters. We know the conflict within our nation. Literally, literally, uh, brother against brother and person against person. I mean, it's just conflict everywhere. And we know all of this. In the midst of this, you know what God has called us to do? 
in the midst of all this conflict and all this turmoil, God has called us to point people beyond their own hatred and their own division and their own troubles. And he's called us to be people of faith, to point people to the only hope we have, Jesus Christ. And God looks at us. Does he look at us as the Jewish leaders were looked at? And he's changed us and he's made us. He's imparted his Holy Spirit into our hearts and he's given us his word. And he's done this so that we can be a holy people. We can live in his righteousness so that we can shun sin because we know how it destroys people. And we can walk in the light. And when God looks at us, does he see us fulfilling that mission? Or does he see in us what he saw in the leaders of Israel and what he saw in that fig tree? People that are not living up to their promise. People that are not living faithfully. And so Jesus does this, right? Jesus curses the fig tree. And you can imagine, right, that the, the disciples are, whoa, that thing just died. I mean, it dies rapidly, it dies quickly. And you can imagine their shock. But here's the thing. As shocked as they are by a fig tree dying, that's not really the, the biggest thing going on. Much bigger than that is what that signified is that in a moment God has said, those religious leaders and what they're doing and all of, all of this, all of this, it's done. No more. No more. Now there is a new way and this way is through me. He's going to show them that. He says this is finished because it did not display faith. Because it did not live up to the promise and so, my friends, God has blessed you, and he's been good to you, and he's supplied uh, so many of your needs, and he's provided a path for you in the midst of your despair. But does he see faith? Or does he see doubt? What does God see when he sees your life? And so the disciples, they're, they're just amazed, and they're stunned. And so, how in the world could this happen? How could this occur? And so then Jesus... He moves to the fig tree, right? He's got the mini drama of the fig tree going on to illustrate this. And you can just imagine him. We think he's close to the Mount of Olives. And this isn't the best picture of it. But show him, show him the picture of the Mount of Olives, Brother Rick. This, this isn't the greatest picture, but it's one I found. So you can imagine the Mount of Olives is just kind of up there. And you can imagine Jesus. Of course, a lot of this stuff wouldn't have been there. But you can imagine Jesus. He's cursed the fig tree. And here they are on the way. And you can imagine him looking over to the mountain. And saying, you think this is amazing that a fig tree has, has withered up and died? He said, I, wa I want to tell you more than that. Look at verse 20, all right? Look, look back in the Bible. It says, the disciples saw it, that the fig tree had died. They marveled and said, how soon is the fig tree withered away? But Jesus answered and said unto them, hey, mark this down. Verily, truly, I say unto you, if you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if you shall say unto this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, it shall be done. And then he does an interesting thing. So here we have the power of mountain-like faith. He's saying, you think that's amazing? The, the level of, of, of power that God gives his people through faith, the degree of faith that God can empower his people to have, is mountain-moving power. What is within you through God's Spirit is the power, literally, the power of faith that on the level that it could move mountains. But look what he does in the next verse. He says, there is this level of power available to you, not just me, but you're my disciples, and I've given this to you as well. The Master is saying, this is for my disciples. This is for my followers, this mountain-moving 
degree of faith. But then he does something really interesting in 22. Look what he does in verse 22. What does he tie mountain-moving faith to? Verse 22. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. Now that's interesting that God takes mountain-moving faith and connects it to prayer. The mountain-moving faith is, is power. And it is amazing power. If you believe God has the power to save sinners, say amen. If you, have a, if you believe that God still has the power to speak peace to those that are battling uh, with cancer or other diseases, say amen. I believe this. If you believe that God still has the power to get our eyes beyond the mess of this world and on Him, if you believe God can do that, say amen. Mountain-moving faith. What power? But he connects that power to a position of powerlessness. Did you catch what God just did here? He took the power of mountain-moving faith, and he says this power of faith and what it can do is available to you. That is great power. But he connects it to a position of powerlessness because he says, how do you exercise this faith? You exercise it through your strength and your power and your will? No. He says this is done through prayer. What happens in prayer? In prayer you admit that you are weak. In prayer you admit that you have no power. In prayer you cry out uh, to, your, to your God and to your Savior. In prayer you ask God to align your will with His will. So what occurs will be according to what He desires. And so God takes this mountain-moving faith a position of power, and he ties it to powerlessness. He says, how will you exercise this? And he says, this will be done through prayer, through a position of dependence upon God. Listen, the mature, faith-filled believer asks and commands the things that are aligned to God's will. Oh, there are many that have claimed, verse 21, and they say, this must be done because I've said it and I believed in faith but they have forgotten verse 22 that says this faith is exercised in prayer. And prayer is a position of being sure that what we desire and what we want is aligned with what God wants and what God desires. But I'll tell you this, when your faith is aligned with the will of God, watch out. Watch out. Because he says when those two things occur, you can literally move mountains they can be moved and cast into the ocean. This morning you say, what is God's will? What is God's will? Today I know there are addicts that are in the midst of our congregation. Addicted to drugs, addicted to pornography, addicted to food, addicted to alcohol, addicted to so many things. And yet I know today that it is God's will that the addict find freedom from his addiction and find life in Jesus. I know today what is God's will. I know the, the teenager uh, that lacks self-confidence. I know the man or the woman that has been through a divorce or is in the midst of their relationship falling apart. And they begin to think to themselves, I'm not worthy and, and there's nothing for me and, and there's no purpose to my life anymore. Listen, if you are that teenager who has 
no confidence today or your self-confidence is wavering. I know what God's will is. It is for you today to know that God has loved you and he has made you and you are glorious made and you are his child and for the one whose relationship is falling apart. I know that it's God's will for you today to know that God loves you and he cares for you and I know for the widow and the widower that are here today that are in pain and it's a struggle to come. I know today that it is God's will for you to know that you are not forgotten. If we serve a great God, say amen. I know this is God's will. I know today that it is God's will for his people to stand for love and for holiness and for truth in the midst of this very ugly this very profane, this very uh, lie-filled world. I know it is God's will for us to stand for something else. I know today that it is God's will that in prayer that you confess His Son, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. And I believe today that when you ask the Lord God to save you, that the mountain of sin in your life is cast into the sea of God's never-ending forgetfulness. You say, what is God's will for me? His will for you is to have faith that moves mountains. And his desire that that is exercised and is in a spirit of dependence upon him and what his will is for his people and his will is for you. So what about your faith today? Do you trust God to exercise mountain moving faith in your life? Some of you didn't get the promotion you wanted. Some of you have not received the job that you wanted. Some of you worked as hard as you could on some project, something, either at school or at work, or maybe in church, and you, and you did the best you could do, and instead of anybody saying something positive, they said something negative. Those things hurt. Those things hurt really, really bad, and you're here today, and you think, man, I, I just don't know. I don't know if I can do this anymore today. Can I tell you today that God has a level of faith for you that not only can you complete the task he's given you for today, but God has a mountain of faith for you that you can finish your race until the day you see him face to face. So when you go back to that job and you go back to that school, when you go back at home and you look at yourself in the mirror and you wonder why, why didn't it work out with this person? When you face that addiction again and that pull is very strong for you to to fall right back into the pattern of your life that you know is destroying you. I want you to know today that God says, get on your knees. Get on your knees and from a position of weakness you will find a power that this world knows nothing of. This past week, Friday night, I'm, I'm going to say, I don't think this is an exaggeration, I'd, I'd have to think about it a little bit, but I, I'd almost be willing to bet you that Friday night for me in my life was probably one of the top six or seven most spirit-filled moments I've ever been a part of. And it was a moment of weakness. Uh, Because we know for the Gary Holman, many of you know him, and you know his battle with cancer. And he's in a weak spot. And so he was in a position of weakness that uh, Wednesday night, some of his Sunday school class that were here for Wednesday night class just said, we, we need to get together and, and, and do something with him. While he's got the strength and ability to do this, we need to get together. And so then a few others, a couple of deacons, we 
gathered Friday night, a little cabin he's been working on. And he just sat there, and as he sat there, we read a verse, and then we sang a lot of hymns, sang a lot of old hymns. And uh, they sang some new songs, too, that the kids sang. We sang hymns. And in that room that night, in a position of utter weakness, because I have no control, and nobody in that room has control over what's happening within his body. None of us can control that. In a position of utter weakness, I watched, and I listened, and I felt as the Spirit of God moved with the proclamation through those songs of who Jesus is and what He has done and the hope that, that we have in Him. And I thought to myself, I, th- I thought as it was going on, I thought, I wish in a few weeks when I go to my 20th high school reunion, I wish that all those people that I loved and that I went to school with, I wish that I could get them in a room like this for just a moment so they could see the power of God through His church and through His people and through His Word when Jesus is lifted up. Because when you are weak, He is strong. And let me just, and and please do this loudly and don't be ashamed. If you were there Friday night and you felt the Spirit of God, would you say amen? It was powerful. But it was a position of utter weakness. But we knew we were doing what God wanted us to do, which was to love and to support one another. My friends, I believe today that God has mountain-moving faith for you in your life. But I believe the way that this faith is understood and exercised, the way you grow into this faith, is through a position of weakness as you recognize that you are completely dependent upon God. How do we exercise our faith? What do we do with it? When I was in fifth and sixth grade, uh, and a little bit before, and and I hope I didn't do this in junior high, but I I can't really remember. But I know when I was like fourth, fifth, sixth grade, this is how I exercised my faith, right? I knew we were supposed to have faith, and I wanted to exercise it. So the way I did it when I was a kid is I would get out on the basketball court. We had, a, we had a hoop connected to our house when I was in fourth, fifth, sixth grade. And I would get on that basketball court. And the way that I would exercise my faith with God is I would try to make deals with God. And I would say things to God. I would say things like, I'm be honest with you, I would say things like, Lord, if I hit 10 free throws in a row, Dad's not going to make us go back to church tonight. Well, I hit 10 a couple times in a row. And you know how many times I got to stay home? Zero. That's probably, that probably fourth, fifth grade that that's how I was trying to exercise my faith with God. Come on, I got faith, God. But that's what I thought. I thought faith was making a deal with God. I, we'll be able to do what I want. Then, then, I don't know, fifth, sixth grade, I started paying more and more attention to girls. And I started making deals with God. Come on, God. If I work really hard and I make, you know, I want to lower it for the girls. If I make five in a row, this girl's going to go out with me. I sit there and shoot. And uh, I don't think any of them that I, that, that deal never worked out with God either. That's immature childlike faith. That, that's not really, well, that's not the kind of faith Jesus is talking about, but that's child faith. That's a little bit of, of knowledge from Sunday school, a little bit of knowledge to my parents, a little bit of an idea that God can do great things, and then me ignorantly in my own strength thinking, I'm going to make deals with God, and then this is how that's going to turn out. My friends, I've grown up, and I don't shoot hoops anymore in the backyard trying to make deals with God. But many times we still approach faith that way. God, if I can just do this, if I just do this, 
then God, you'll do this for me. God, if I just teach this Sunday school class, then you'll do this for me. God, if I just give my life to ministry, then maybe you'll do this for me. God, if I just give this money to this cause, then you'll just take this illness away for that one I love. God, if you just do whatever it is, we can work this deal out. My friends, that's not faith when you are saying, this is what I'm going to do. Faith is when you get on your knees and you say, God, this is what I believe you can do because it's your will. And today, today in this room, there are those of you that you've waited so long. And you're still waiting and I don't know what game you're playing with God. But he says today is the day of your salvation. And there's nothing else you're going to do. You just got to get on your knees and accept that I'm your Lord. I, some of you have problems and issues you're dealing with and you keep, okay, God, I'm going to give it to you. And then we take it right back, don't we? God, I'm going to trust you. And then we take it right back. Can I tell you today, some of you, your health problems are so big, you better stop taking it back and you just better trust God to be faithful in whatever's going to happen. Some of you with loved ones that are sick, it's so severe and, and, and you... Trust God and take it back. Trust God and take it back. And he says today, come today and experience the faith that can move mountains. My boys, soccer practice this week. I was just standing there with the parents. And uh, it's pretty cool because half of them don't know that I'm a preacher yet. And so they say stuff that people don't say when they find out you're a preacher. And so you find out their real personality. And uh, they were sitting there talking. And just doing things, and and uh, but but then the conversation kind of turned from frivolous things to there were these adults. They were talking about just how bad things are right now, and how dark it is, and how dreary it is. And there was just a depression among this group of people my age that are in their thirties, and it was just severe depression of this country's not going to get any better. It's just the attitude that was there. It's just not going to get any better. It's just going to get worse. And what are our kids going to experience? And what are they going to go through? And I mean, it was a very depressing moment of this is just horrible. What's going on? And, you know, I left that conversation and I made a promise to God. I promised to God that the next time that that happened, that I would speak up and that I would say, you know what? It's really, really dark. But I know a God that is greater than all this darkness. And me and my family, and this is true, Lark can say this, it's dark. And we get down sometimes too, but Laura can tell you, our home is a place of happiness for our children and is a place of joy. And you want to know why? Not because of our own strength and not because we don't stress out about bills and not because we don't worry about things and not because we don't have issues. But I can tell you this, when we tuck our boys in at night, we know that there is a God greater than anything this world is throwing at us. Anything. And my friend, so whatever he's throwing at you, Whatever thing is laying at you, let's not be like so many people that are just down and say, we can't get back up and there's nothing we can do. We need to get down and say, God, you can lift us up. And so Jesus says a lot of shocking things. And maybe one of the most shocking things he ever said was to look at disciples who were about to watch him die on a cross. 
And he looked at them and he said, I want you to know that there is a faith that can move mountains. And when you are aligned with God's will in prayer, when you are totally dependent upon him, your prayer is aligned with his will. You will watch the mountains move. Would you stand with me today? Lord God, we've come and we've preached your word and we've sung your songs and we've prayed our prayers. But Lord, at the end of it all, we come today and acknowledge that there is a faith that is only possible through you. What you've done for us on a cross. Lord, I pray this morning, Lord, for those that are here in this congregation, Lord, for those that are wearied and tired, for those that are defeated and beat down, for those that, uh, that know they face obstacles in their life that are far beyond them. Lord, I pray today that they would come and that they would kneel in a position of prayer. But Lord, more important than the position, Lord, I pray that their heart would be a heart of prayer knelt to you. Lord, I pray today that your spirit would move. Lord, and there's one that needs you for salvation, that they would come today and they would receive the gift that you give. God, help us to not make deals with you today, but help us to be dependent upon you for what only you can accomplish. Lord, if there's one that needs to come, Lord, give them the freedom to come, even now, Lord, to pray with you. Lord God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.